thanksgiving for how you have worked our salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we experience this world, I pray that we would continue to be light, that we would continue to push back the darkness, that your church would make a stand, that we would live faith out loud in front of people. Thank you for the opportunities you've given us um, to be the church. Thank you in advance for um, the opportunity for Edelbrook and and even for the the Hope Homes and and all the the toys that have been purchased for the kids. Thank you, Father, that, that we are able to be your light. So as I bring the word today, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So there are two experiences in life that everyone experiences. The first experience is we're born. Now, I don't think, as I look here, I don't think anyone has been hatched. And so I would probably venture to say that we all have experienced birth. The joys, the, the and, and I find that um, not many of us remember that moment where darkness turned to light. Anybody? No, huh? Isn't it a shame that we don't remember that, that moment? And on the flip side, as we've gone through life, the other experience we all experience is the day of our death. These are two experiences in life of human of humanity that every single person will experience. Now, what I find interesting is that even though we we understand that our death is imminent, that we we have a, a hard time wrapping our heads around it. And we try to avoid it at all costs. We don't like to talk about it. And in fact, I don't think we we do death well in our culture. We tell people you got three days bereavement, and then you got to get back to work. And, and what I have found, it's just not enough. And, and, then, and then sometimes what, what I found is when, when my dad died, um, that place of grief and mourning is very lonely because, because you experience that loss, but yet everybody else seems to move on with life, and that's just the way it kind of goes. But you're kind of left behind in that place of loneliness. So we don't do death well. But there are those moments in our life when it confronts us on a very, very personal level. This past week, Trish Griffin's mom passed, and we did the memorial service, and Peggy Fountain's dad has passed away. And even though in their 90s, which we would consider a long life, there's still loss. It just feels like it's not long enough. And so we grieve and we mourn, and, and death kind of comes, and it, and, it, and it presents itself right to our face. And in that moment, we begin to see very clearly, and we're reminded that we won't live in this body forever. Now, it seems the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's come to this, this moment of clarity as he's kind of writing chapter 8 of his of his his memoir and chapter 8 is a little bit um, it's a little bit scattered in thought there's not a very clear flow a linear flow of what he's trying to think about 
And so he's, he's a little bit sporadic, but it seems that he has come to this conclusion. Now, last week, he's kind of writing about kings and how kings have been given this God-given power to rule and how we are to live under, under that governing rule as, as, as people of God. And he talks about how, how God is sovereign over life and death. And, and though we know it's coming, none of us with 100% certainty know the exact moment. We don't control that time. We don't control the day. We don't control the circumstances. And he wants to present all of this in the context of living a life in wisdom or with wisdom. And then there's this shift in, in verse 10. So we kind of went through the first eight, nine verses, but then there's this shift. And I can only think or imagine that he's reminiscing about something he experienced. Or maybe he looked out the window and he's, he's seen something because this is, this is what he writes in verse 10. Then too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. So somehow he's experienced or he has seen or heard about the funeral of a wicked person. You know, and that word wicked, it's a very, we don't use that word very often. Like unless unless you're referring to somebody as wicked smart. But, but we don't use it in the context of what he means as somebody who completely disregards the things of God. And so he sees this, this, this funeral, this burial. And there is, a, there is a perspective that death brings. Sometimes I've, in the past, I've liked to uh, photograph uh, old cemeteries and, and to walk through um, the, the old tombstones, and, and I read those stones, and I read the names, and I read the ages. And it begins to bring life into perspective when you, when you kind of walk through and you see. And, 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 I, and I always think about, you know, that, that, that poem, The Dash. And so you have the day of birth, and then you have the day that they died. But I, I often wonder, what kind of life did they live in the middle? What, what did they go through? Once I was hiking in, in Southington up near... Um, the Wolcott Town Line, and I came across a very small cemetery in the middle of the woods with, with no roads, with no clear entrance or exit. It was literally in the middle of the woods, and so I started to walk through it, and very little uh, marker stones were all over the place, and I found that the majority of these stones were for children. And as I was in, in all from the 1700s, 1800s, and I'm looking and I'm reading and, and you're trying to see, it seems that many children who died of smallpox were buried in the cemetery. And then you start to think of that dash. I remember the youngest being just about six months old, and you think about their families. There's this perspective that death brings to us, even if it's for a short amount of time, even for brief, that we begin to focus or remember or recall the essential things in life, and we try to let all of the noise just kind of go away. And so this reality of death and what the teacher has seen, it's helped him kind of come to some conclusions as he's wrestling with something in his own spirit. He's wrestling with the reality that sometimes in this world, bad people live a good life. Those who do wrong 
seem to have a better life than those who try to do right. And you would think that a just God, a righteous God, that would be reversed. Like, the people who try to follow the things of God would have a blessed life. And the people who are just completely disregarding him, well, maybe they wouldn't have it so good. But the opposite feels very true sometimes. Look look what the psalmist writes in in, uh, Psalm 73. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's that word again. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from uh, common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. So here are wicked people, and they're they're, they're having a good life. Prosperity, no struggles. Can anybody relate to no struggles? And I think you're all pretty nice people. Bodies are healthy, strong, free from human burdens. They seem to have it better than people who try to follow God. And the psalmist, he's, he's envious of the wicked. The teacher writes, Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. Now when it talks about the holy place coming to and fro, the holy place, I really don't know. Could it be Jerusalem? Could it be a uh, temple? But there's something that we need to pay very close attention to in this if you want to get a little, if you allow me to get geeky with you for a minute. When it says that they receive praise in the city, many of your Bibles will have a little note at the bottom that says that the Septuagint and the original, uh, many of the original um, Hebrew transcripts actually take uh, receive praise and, and they translate it differently and they translate it are forgotten. Then see why I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and were forgotten in the city where they did this. So whether they've received praise in the earthly setting, these these wicked people as they come and go freely, basically, when they're gone, they're forgotten. They're remembered no more. The teacher knows that the world is is filled with, with injustice. And he sees the injustice of the good receiving what they shouldn't and the bad receiving what they shouldn't. In fact, he writes it in verse 14. There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserves and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. How in the world can that be remotely looking like justice? That the wicked get what the good deserve and the good get what the wicked deserve. That the wicked skate by in life, but many good people suffer. If you watch the news, you see it readily. I see CEOs who are given bonuses more than what we will ever make in our lifetime, a yearly bonus for cutting costs at the expense of people who lose their jobs. And we can go on and on and on that it seems that those who are wicked make out better than those who try to be godly. There seems to be this role reversal for retribution and reward. Retribution. 
And it's hard that it's difficult for us to just come to terms with that sometimes, especially if you're on the receiving end of something that has taken your breath away, something that has taken the life right out of you. Like if bad people have the good life, then why in the world should anyone pursue godliness? And what makes matters worse? Verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. (laughs) So here's here's this kind of a snapshot of the human heart, the human condition. That if justice isn't carried out, then it's our inclination. The human heart says, wait a minute, I got away with this? Ooh, maybe I'll get away with it again. Let me try it again. Let me try it again. Let me try it again. It's the darkness in the human heart. But if deeds, if evil deeds, if wrongdoings were taken care of justly right away, then maybe people wouldn't be so free to walk down that road. Maybe they would check themselves and pause if there were consequences. But the reality of it is is this. All of us, whether you believe in God or not, whether you are a Christ follower or you have rejected him completely, we all take advantage of God's mercy when we persist in our own unrighteousness. We all take advantage of it. God, the scripture tells us, is patient. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He desires not a single person to perish, but he does have a righteous anger. And God is giving people time to repent. Romans chapter 2, Paul writes that God's kindness is, is there so it would lead us to a place of repenting. And yet, all of us, even people in the church, we push that patience a little bit. We push the goodness of God. And for many, they'd, if there is a judgment coming down the pike, it seems way, way off. We don't worry about it. I'm young. I'm, you know, I'm healthy. I don't have to worry about that. There are many people that believe that God will not judge them at all. There are those that believe they will be judged on the fact that, well, they haven't murdered anyone. But the reality is, when we stand before the Lord in that moment, when we take our last breath, when we stand before him, we will be judged on one thing and one thing alone. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? That's what we'll be judged on in that moment. Have you received him as your Lord and your Savior? And so I think, you know, the, the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's wrestling with these, these questions of, of what happens when it all comes to an end. What can we expect when it all comes to an end? The teacher believes that in the end... God will be righting all of the wrongs that have taken place in the world. That there will be a final uh, judgment. That God will stand. His righteousness will stand. And and, and the teacher, he is troubled and he's, he's concerned with and he's sickened by the brokenness in the world. But he believes that God, in the end, will make it right. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. 
and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. We can kind of, I think, take these verses and we can kind of apply them, I believe, wrongly to, to this life that we live on, on the earth, right? Like, whether or not if things go well with us depends on how we honor God. But I don't believe that's what he is trying to get across to us. It's not my experience. I know many, many people who honor God with their lives and have a very difficult time in life. And if you take these verses in the context of what went before and what comes after, the teacher is pointing us to the future. The teacher is pointing us way ahead of ourselves. He knows the world is full of injustice, but in the end, God wins. God's justice prevails. He will make right everything that this world has made wrong. It will not turn out well for those who are faithless in the things of the Lord. That's, that's, that's hard for me at times to kind of get my mind around because I know plenty of good people who want nothing to do with God. <clears throat> like good, loving moms, dads, friends, and they want nothing to do with the Lord. And I think, my goodness. Those are, these are these, these verses in the Bible that just cause you, cause you to pause a little bit. See, without Christ, there is no second chance. When we give that breath back to the Lord and we stand before him, he will not walk to us and say, you got one last chance, this is it. It's, it, it's, it's not what happens the decision needs to be made now. And one day we will all pass into eternity. And the question is, where will you spend it? Where will they spend it? Do you see how important it is for the church to share the gospel? There is no second chance. As I read these verses, it seems that those who deny God, deny Christ, they cling to life because there is no assurance of anything afterward. If this is all there is, then live and let live and, and, and let me get everything that I can possibly get now, here. It doesn't matter who I hurt. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter any lies that I might have told to get what I really want or what I believe I really deserve. If there's nothing after this, then, then I might as well live to the fullest now. There's no assurance for those who reject Christ. And yet even in verse 13... It will not go well with them. Their days will not lengthen like a shadow. What he's trying to get at is even those who deny God, God's still sovereign over their life. He's still in control of their every day. He is still in control of their every breath. And they will not get one more day than God has ordained for them. They can't cheat God. They can't pull a fast one on him. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. But those who fear God 
That's our hope. That's our firm foundation. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And yes, I do believe that, that sometimes we've preached that wrong. and We've taken it out of the context. But there is a healthy fear of God that should make us a little bit nervous. It's kind of like teaching your child not to run in the streets. Have a healthy fear of the road and traffic and cars. Not so they, they cringe on the sidewalk and they don't ever want to leave the sidewalk. But just so they know. And that's a healthy fear of the Lord. But yet fear of the Lord is just to, just to understand that the, the magnificentness of his nature and his love and his power and his might over all of creation. And even I believe the fear of the Lord has to do with understanding that he is constantly, consistently close to each one of us. He is with each and every one of us. Every, we, we, every second, we are constantly in his presence. I wonder how we would live differently if, if that was always in our brain. Every second, we stand in the presence of the Lord. Every thought that we have in our brain, he knows before it's even there. Every word that comes out of our mouth, he knows before it's even, even spoken. He is with us when we need help. He is with, with us when we think we got this and we don't need help. When we lay in bed at night and, and we think those thoughts and, and, and if worry and anxiety comes upon us, he is with us in those moments. In those moments where we fall asleep quickly and blissfully, he is with us within those moments where I find the most solace in my own life is that I know the Lord is with me every single Sunday when I watch the Giants lose. Even though he made it forsaken that team, he is with me. One in seven. Come on. We need a quarterback and a running back. Why do we see where I digress? To fear the Lord is to understand he is with us every single moment of every single day. And this is an important theme throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, the fear of God. Those who fear the Lord, it will go well with us, with you, with me. This life and in the future. It, it reminds me of the story of Jesus on the cross. And he's being crucified. And there's two thieves, one on, each, one on either side. And, and one of the, the thieves looks at Jesus he says, you know, why don't you save yourself and save me at the same time? And the other thief, he's like, you know, we deserve this. He doesn't. Don't you fear God? And in that moment, he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? How does anyone begin to live in the fear of the Lord? You just ask Jesus to save you. And he will be faithful. He will be faithful. He told that thief today, today you will be with me in paradise. He had no chance to make amends for everything that he, done, he did wrong. He had no chance to make it better. He was on the cross. It was a dying moment. He said, Jesus, please remember me. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Fear of the Lord. And each and every person that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's forgiveness. That's a fear of God. 
Now, I, I've always thought that there are only two kinds of people in the word, uh, world, and I've categorized them. And for many, many years, I, I looked at it as there are those who own iPhones and then those who don't. And, and so there's, you know, there's a, a, there's a distance between the two. But now I think I've matured in my ideology, philosophy, theology. And what I've come to understand is really there are only still two kinds of people in the world, those who will fear the Lord and those who will not. And I don't want to define what fear of the Lord looks like. And, and this person doesn't because they've done this, they do this, they do. Listen, we are not judged in Christ. There is no condemnation. We are not judged on behavior, though transformation of the power of the Holy Spirit should change the way we live. But it's not for me to judge someone readily, quickly. Oh, you do this? Well, you're not really a Christian. See, when we stand before God, it will be, have you put your faith in Christ? That's the question. And if you have, things begin to change in this life, in this world. And those who fear God, it will be well. It may not be perfect in this life. It may not even be good in this life. But there is a promise for eternity that God has given us. But until that day comes... I find it very interesting, the advice that the teacher is going to give us for today. So I commended the enjoyment of life. So I commended, I commend, I'm sorry, I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil. All the days of the life God has given them under the sun. I believe what he's trying to tell us is every single day, no matter what, is a gift that we've been given from God. Every single day. I have this little saying, you know, every day above ground is, is a good day. Because it's God's gift to us. And in that reverence, and in that truth, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, we can know joy. Because God has given us every single day. That even in our darkest hour, the Lord is near. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to the brokenhearted. Close to them. He's close to those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34 is a beautiful picture of that. He's close. He's near. And even if there's a lot of meaninglessness under the sun, and there's a lot of injustice in this world that we just, it's hard for us to understand. And yes, we as disciples of Christ, we've got a lot of work to do in, in our pursuit of the things of God. And as a church, we've got a lot of work to do in spreading this good news and hope and light to the world. But yet within the mundane, everyday, ordinary stuff, we can know joy. It's his promise. We can know joy. Those who have this personal knowledge of Christ's relationship with him, there is a certainty of eternal life. Certainty. Without that, I, I, I don't know if we can find any joy in this world. Like if this is it, I want a do-over. 
those who fear the Lord, we live in full confidence that God is with you. Right here, that close with me, with each one of you. For those who fear the Lord, we know, we know that one day, one day when he returns, there will be justice for all. He puts it back together. He makes it right. He heals. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more death. We will be in his presence forever. For those who fear the Lord, we will be in paradise. In paradise. We live with that truth. When we live with that truth, we can live well in the midst of anything. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying uh, your feelings um, should be disregarded. What I'm saying is when there is that hope, there is joy. Where there is that hope that God wins, there is joy. Father, we thank you that you love us and that you've given us Jesus. Now, Father, I pray that we would live in joy knowing that there is true justice for all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.